begins close to 8.30, just a one minute after, that's pretty good. Not bad for our first day. Uh, would you grab the door for us? Alright, so, so glad that you're here. What a great looking class. I'm excited about teaching you all. I'm glad that you found us here, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to learn a lot. We'll do the introductions first, so that'll help me take role, because I don't know all of you, and after you do your introductions, then I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and then we'll get into the course here. So, we'll start over here with the guys, and start in the front row, and just let me know your name, uh, how old you are, and whether or not you would rather eat bananas that are a little bit too brown, or bananas a little bit too green. You have to choose between the brown banana or the green banana. Um, or, you know, a lot too brown or a lot too green. So, right here, what's your name? Levi, I'm 16, and I just prefer not to eat bananas. No bananas at all? Yeah. None of the above. Levi Parker or Pinkman? Pinkman. Okay. Yeah. My name's Blake Whitler. I'm 17, and I would just avoid bananas. Wow, two no bananas, all right. I'm Wesley Morrison, and I'm 15, and... Okay, we got one for Brown. Jace Manning, I'm 16, and I also probably go for Brown. Levi Parker, uh, 16, and I, uh, Brown. Jude McNeil, and I'm 15, and I prefer my bad bananas to tiny bit green. <gasps> <laughs> Is that our that's first green? That's bad. Yeah. Uh, you said you were 15? Gotcha. All right. I'm Gus Bowden. I'm 17, and I would prefer not to be Is that our third opening? <laughs> I'm 16, and probably a little green. Say your name again. Okay. And how old are you? I'm 17. Okay. So let's see. Gus, I got Isaac. Sam's here. Uh, I'm just missing Elise Van Cleve. She told me she was going to be late. Uh, Iris. Is Iris Silstrom here? Okay. Very good. All right. So we got everybody. Wonderful.
Well, my name is Timothy Schmidt, and I'm the father for uh, Elise and Clarissa, and that explains why I eat a lot of brown bananas at our house. They're eating all the green ones, I eat the ones that are left. Um, I've been preaching in this church for about 14 and a half years. I've been doing public speaking, public teaching, for about 20 years, 25, somewhere in between there. I've got a seminary degree where I've got uh, training in apologetics, and I've also graduated from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln with a major in English and minors in history and communication. And so I've got some qualifications to teach a class on apologetics, and it's going to incorporate history, speech, all of that. This is, this is the stuff I love. This is something I've been looking forward to teaching for quite a while. Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? I have not taught it before. I'm looking forward to, to learning about it more with you. And then the Study to Show Yourself Approved book, I have taught before and loved it. And so I wanted to incorporate that as well as we have a whole year of class together here, meeting on Fridays once a week. And as it says in the class description, we're going to be doing about 30 pages of reading a week to get through these two books together with the study guides that go along with those books and the DVD uh, course that comes along with How Should We Then Live. We'll get into more of what the course objectives and expectations are in a minute. But first, let's go ahead and have the guys come forward and get a handout. Uh, well, we've got four different things you need to pick up. This side over here uh, are three-hole punched, so if you're going to be using a three-ring binder to keep track of your stuff, I've got those punched. If you're just going to be using a folder and you don't need them punched, I've got the unpunched here. Uh, if we run out of one or the other, the puncher is right there. So you don't need all eight of these. They're the same on both sides, so just pick your side, whether it's the three-hole punch or the staple together. And so guys coming up and get it, and then we'll have the girls come up after that. Yeah, you know, just like green and brown bananas, now you have to choose three-hole punch or staple. This is so controversial. <laughs> we don't shy away from controversy in this class. Now, I'd like to mention also that I'm teaching this course for free. Uh, partly because I wanted to teach it to my family, um, partly because it's here at our church, and it's a great way for me to get to know other families and other people, so I've got some incentive to teach the class. But just because I'm offering the class for free, I don't want you to take it for granted. And sometimes we don't value things that we don't pay for. And so that's why I start off by telling you some of my qualifications to teach the course, so that you will value what it is that I'm giving to you. I had to pay a lot of money to go to college and learn these things, and to go to seminary and learn these things. And now, I'm here teaching them to you for free. And so, I want you to understand this is valuable material that you're getting, and so please pay me, not in money, but pay me in your respect and your attention in class. And if you will do that, then I will be well paid. Ladies, come on up and get uh, your handouts. Now, all instructors should be respected. That's the Christian attitude, is that we pay respect to those whom respect is due. 
And so that what I say here for this class, of course, goes for all classes, especially classes that are taught by your parents. I think sometimes we respect instructors who are not our parents more than we instruct our parents because we just kind of take our parents for granted and we're with them all the time. And there's an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. And so we have to be on our guard against allowing contempt growing in our heart towards our family members, but to give our family members the honor and respect that they deserve and that God requires. All right, so everybody's got one of each of the four handouts. Excellent. Well, one of the first things I'd like to do then is I would like to talk about the curriculum in the course, and then we'll talk about some of the course objectives. So, if you have the Study to Show Yourself Approved book, go ahead and hold that up. I want to see who all has got it with them here today. Hold it up if you've got it. Now, if you have it at home and for some reason you didn't bring it, uh, raise your hand. Alright, so, if you don't have it, raise your hand. Now, this book, I sent out several emails about that it is out of print and it's a little bit hard to find, but uh, there is a reprinted version of it. Uh, Blake, hold that up so everyone can see it. Uh, it's been renamed to Principles of Biblical Interpretation. And so, if you want to order it from the Emmaus website, you'll be looking not for Study to Show Yourself Approved. They just have a digital course for this. But it'll be under the title, Principles for Biblical Interpretation. Same book, same content, same study guide, uh, quizzes that go along with it. And so, that is going to be our textbook for the part of the class, if you look at your course objectives, that's here on this page that I handed out in the blue ink. If you look at the course objectives, the part of the class that has to do with the reading comprehension and interpretation of literature is largely in this Study to Show Yourself Approved book. Now, Study to Show Yourself Approved is not the first book we're going to be looking at together this week, but in the coming weeks we'll be diving into that. I haven't got it all plotted out yet, and we're going to figure it out as we go. But I wanted to start off by pointing out how important it is to be able to understand communication, to be able to properly interpret both written and oral communication, as well as nonverbal communication, by giving you the article that you uh, have there in some of your handouts. Pardon me for just a moment. Alright, so, I gave you this news article about nooses in Oakland Park. And uh, this was a story from 2020, June 2020, as you see on your handout, and up here on the screen. And... If you take a look at that article, you'll see how important it is that we not have a postmodernist understanding of communication. And I want to point out this example here. So, follow along. I'll read some of the article out loud for us here, starting at the beginning. Oakland's mayor, who's pictured up here, said that five ropes were found hanging from trees in a city park. She called them nooses, and racially charged symbols of terror. 
But a resident said they are merely exercise equipment that he put up there months ago. So there's a lot of craziness going on in 2020, and there's some crazy people out there interpreting things in crazy ways. And so you've got there a picture of this exercise equipment hanging from the tree that was used as a climbing uh, exercise. You'd grab one and climb over the other. It was part of, part of the fun of the park. But this was interpreted as a noose and as a, some kind of racial threat. And so uh, the police provided photographs, you see that. Um, and you come down and we find that Victor Sang Sangby, who is black, told KGO-TV that the ropes, were part, the ropes were part of a rigging that he and his friends used as a part of a larger swing system. He also showed video of the swing in use. Out of the dozen and hundreds and thousands of people that walked by, no one has thought that it looked anything close to a noose. Folks have used it for exercise. It was a really fun addition to the park that we tried to create, Sangby said. It's unfortunate that a genuine gesture of just wanting to have a good time got misinterpreted into something so heinous. And it goes on and explains how nooses have a, a history uh, in uh, America and other places. And so, notice what uh, Schaff, the, the mayor, said. Notice the quote there. It says, Schaff said officials must start with the assumption that these are hate crimes. Whew, I don't want to live in a society where, where the police start with an assumption of a hate crime. Uh, that's not a good starting place. Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Uh, starting with an assumption of, of guilt, that's... That's not the America that I remember. Um, so then it goes on and says, the, uh, the mayor uh, and Nicholas Williams, the city's director of parks and recreation, said it didn't matter whether the ropes were meant to send a racist message. Intentions don't matter when it comes to terrorizing the public. Now, if we're going to say that intentions don't matter when it comes to communication, then this puts us in a very scary place. And then it means that the authorities who have the power to put you in jail or take away your life don't have to prove that you intended to mean anything by what you said, but they can just say, well, we take it this way, and therefore you're guilty of a hate crime because we are taking it as a hate crime, whether you meant it as a hateful statement or not. And so intentions matter when it comes to communication. And the goal of interpreting communication is to understand the intentions of the person who is communicating. And so this, this book, Study to Show Yourself Approved, is going to, to teach us how to interpret a written text, but it's going to apply to all communication, how to understand communication in its own context according to the author's intention. And this is a very different view of communication than what we have represented by the mayor of Oakland and they will produce very different societies, okay? So the way you understand communication is going to affect law enforcement, and it's going to affect all areas of life. That we find that at the, the basis of human society is human thought, and that's really the key thought in how should we then live, is that the way people think about basic things like what is communication and how are you supposed to interpret communication, as well as a host of other important foundational concepts really determine what happens in our individual lives, but not just our individual lives, but in our communities, in our nation, in our world. That thought matters, and how we think about things, what we believe about basic presuppositions is essential to good living and a healthy society. 
That's going to be the, the big idea in the course, and that's why I'm introducing that here with an example from a different worldview uh, within our own society. And that's what we have. We have competing worldviews that will have competing ways of how do we live. And that's why it's becoming harder and harder for Americans to communicate, to be able to understand one another, and to be able to live together because of different worldviews, different ways of thinking about basic truth in our world. So keep that as an example in your mind and keep it in your notes. Now, having just mentioned the textbook, now this is the old uh, original edition of How Should We Then Live. Uh, hold up your copy of How Should We Then Live if you brought it with you this morning. Um, so you see that it's been reprinted. Nice try, guys. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't gotten this yet, you're going to need it this week. This is where we're starting off. Uh, yes? It is available If you're waiting for your hard copy. I don't want you to replace the textbook all year with listening to the audiobook. There's, there's something beneficial about actually reading the text with your own eyes. So I want you to get the book. Don't just rely on the audiobook. But if you don't have the audio, if you don't have the textbook yet, and you want to, you know, at least be keeping up a little bit with what we're doing, uh, it's available for free on Hoopla. Um, now, this book was originally published in 1976. I was one year old in 1976, so that gives you some idea of how dated this book is. And the video that goes along with the book, we probably won't have time for, it'll probably be part of your assignment this week is also from uh, 1976, uh, or shortly thereafter. And so, the video was very well produced for its time, but it has aged. And we have different standards now from what they had back then as to you know, what an a instructional video or documentary video should look like. And so, it's part of my job in this class is to show you how what Schaefer wrote 40 years ago, 45 years ago, is, is exactly right that cultures and society, it takes time for history to play out. You know, Rome didn't fall in a day. You, know, you heard the saying that Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, it didn't fall in a day either. It took hundreds of years for Rome to decay and fall apart. And so in the same way, our culture, our society, Western civilization, doesn't fall apart in 10 years. It takes uh, 100 years or 200 years. And that process of decay is, is what Francis Schaeffer notes because of false thinking and false beliefs leading to a decayed society. And so now, here we are 45 years later, and we can see how prescient Francis Schaeffer was. Prescient, uh, if I had my whiteboard up here, I meant to do that. I'd be writing out the word prescient for you. It's, it's P-R-E, which means before, and then S-C-I-E-N-C-E, -E, science. Uh, pr prescience is knowing ahead of time. Science is the word for knowledge. Pre is the word for before. So it's another word for foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, prescience, uh, two different words saying the same thing. And so we can see that he was a, a genius analyzing the flow of history and comparing uh, the fall of the Roman Empire with the fall of Western civilization. And then we can see exactly what he identified as a problem and exactly what were going to be the consequences of that problem coming true in our lifetime. Things have not gotten better since the 1970s in Europe and America, Western civilization, Canada, Australia. Things have gotten much worse. And this book is as timely as it was when it was written in 1976. Now, Francis Schaeffer, writing in 1976, is old enough to be my grandfather. And so we'll, we'll call him Grandpa Francis as uh, we go through the course. And he did an excellent job in researching this book. 
the book's vision came from his son, who was a professional artist, and so he wanted to take his interest in art together with his father's expertise in history and philosophy and theology and, and produce this series uh, kind of connecting the art of our modern and postmodern era together with the uh, faulty ideas that are destroying the culture and also you see showing up in the art of our time, whether it's popular art or whether it is the more sophisticated uh, liberal arts. Now, unfortunately, uh, sadly, his son fell away from the faith later in life, but they did get to work on this for two years when uh, he was a younger man. Now, go ahead and open up How Should We Then Live and take a look at the table of contents with me. So, as you look at the table of contents, which is always a great idea when you're starting a new study, you're going to kind of get the, the big idea, the flow, uh, an outline of the course. So you see we're going to start in ancient Rome, move into the Middle Ages, and that's moving pretty quickly through all of that more ancient history, because his real goal is to kind of get to the modern period, which starts with the Renaissance, the Reformation. He's got two chapters on the Reformation showing you how foundational that is to the thought of the book. And then you've got the Enlightenment, the rise of modern science, the breakdown in philosophy and science, Modern philosophy and modern theology, notice the repeating of the word modern, modern art, music, literature, and films, our society, and so on. Now, I'll talk about the last chapters here in a minute, but let's talk about modernism. So when you see modern in there, you see that the major worldview that he's going to be comparing and contrasting with Christianity, which is my worldview, is that the, the modernist views society in the lens of humanity, that human beings, humanism, teaches that human beings are the measure of all things. Have you ever heard the phrase, man is the measure of all things? Uh, that's the, the bedrock statement of humanism. And so the, the humanist religion, and it is a religion, uh, has humanity as the source of meaning and truth and, and all the important concepts at the core of reality and existence. But the Christian worldview has an eternal, infinite, personal God as the ground of reality and the source of truth and knowledge and wisdom and, and all of those things. And so they have two very different starting points, two very different foundations for all of the, the way they interpret the world and gain knowledge. So modernism is going to be the, the major focus of the book. However, modernism in the 20th, 21st century has been replaced as the dominant worldview among the elites. Not the dominant worldview so much among the people, but the dominant worldview among those who are in power in educational institutions, in government institutions, in uh, business institutions. It has been replaced by postmodernism. Postmodernism is what comes after modernism. And postmodernism, while still humanist, it still sees man as the measure of all things, it is a different worldview, it is a different religion from modernism. And modernism and postmodernism are actually in conflict with one another. That'll be part of my job in the course also, is to show how the ideas that he presents in this book not only relate to the modernists in our culture, but the postmodernists, who are the ones that are uh, represented by the Oakland mayor. She's more of a postmodernist than a modernist. Alright? So, we come back to how should we then live? And 
Notice that the last two chapters are very interesting as he moves into our society. And this is, again, our society at the end of the 20th century. And it's changed a little bit since then. So when we get to that, we'll add a chapter, so to speak, to his book here. And so in our society, notice chapter 12 is about manipulation and the new elite. Well, that sounds very contemporary, that the elite are manipulating the population with the powerful tools that they have for thought control, as well as powerful tools for control in physical ways. So manipulation and the new elite is, it sounds like a very timely chapter, sounds like it could have been written last year. And then the alternatives, uh, and this is where you come in, all right? So you, who are going to be trained not in postmodernism and modernist thinking, but who are going to be trained according to a Christian worldview, you are going to show what is the alternative to the way that the world is, is building its society or destroying its society, if you want to look at it in, in that way. And you're going to show how the Christian worldview is able to build something that is, has a foundation, something that is good, something that can last Whereas the modernist worldview and the postmodernist worldview can only destroy society and destroy people and destroy families uh, and destroy nations. And so that's going to be your role is to figure out how do we in our time live out the alternative to the way that the world is living. Now, I've also given to you a, a page of, of music lyrics. Uh, and I'm going to play the song for you here in a moment. And... The lyrics that I gave you are from uh, 20 years ago, and this is when I was a young man, uh, and I, I found the Orange County Supertones to be music that I really enjoyed, and I still do. And so, music might be a little bit dated as well, musical styles change, but if you'll notice the words on the song Grounded, that's the one I'm going to play for you this morning, especially the, the last uh, stanza there that I gave to you. Learn how to fight from words on the paper. And here he's talking about the Bible as being the, the paper. I think I, I could change that to the paper is probably the correct lyric there. And then he says, learn from the Shoguns, Bonson, and Schaefer. So he mentioned Schaefer here in the song lyrics as the Shogun that we want to learn from in the conflict, the battle of worldviews. And... So this is a, a song that really, I think, addresses exactly what this book is about, and it was inspired by probably the study and the reading of Francis Schaeffer's book, as well as Greg Bonson. Uh, we're not using Greg Bonson in this course, but if you're looking for further study on this particular subject, I would recommend you do learn from the Shogun uh, Bonson. What's a Shogun? Anybody know what a Shogun is? Right, that's uh, a Japanese term for the, the strategic warlords. And so the, we're in a battle and we want to use good strategy. And uh, the, the generals that we have teaching us the good strategy are Bonson and Schaefer, among a, a number of others. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that song and you can follow along in the lyrics. I don't have all the lyrics on there. I think I skipped the first stanza just for space.
Towns, I do recommend their music. It's, it's very well done. Um, the other song I put on the back, The Return of the Revolution, is a great one too. But this one specifically focuses more on apologetics. I like what it says. We need apologetic instruction, mental reconstruction, ignorance reduction, to halt the mass abduction. So there's a mass abduction going on in the, in the minds and the hearts of people in our society. And, and I want to train up soldiers who can fight from the words on the paper and can reduce that ignorance and reconstruct uh, mental uh, sanity in uh, young people, the future generations. Now, notice that it says presuppositions. Well, let's see. Where does it talk about the presuppositions? Uh, do I not have that on here? Okay, I guess I didn't have that part. Um, but one of the key words in the song was, was presupposition. And so, Francis Schaeffer, he's going to talk about presuppositions in the first chapter as you go through the book. And a presupposition is a basic belief that we have uh, that causes us to interpret the world in a certain way. So all worldviews have presuppositions about the nature of reality, the nature of truth, the nature of humanity, the nature of ethics, what's right and wrong. There's basic presuppositions that we have that are going to determine how we live and how we look at the world and how we treat people. And so the presuppositions are key. That's what you want to be able to identify. When you're looking at arguments, as uh, modernists would give arguments for their position, or as postmodernists don't even bother with arguments, they're just all about authority. Uh, but if you're looking at an argument, you want to be able to identify what is the presupposition. And so often, their argument is fine, it's their presupposition that is faulty. And logic from a faulty presupposition will lead you to a bad conclusion, even if you have sound logic. So you want to identify presuppositions. Now open up your book, please, to page number, I believe, 16. Yeah, page number 16. At the bottom of page number 16, please. And for those of you that were in our class here last year, you'll remember that we studied Greek philosophy in the era of the pre-Socratics. The pre-Socratics are the Greek thinkers who lived before the time of Socrates. And after Socrates, we have kind of a new era in the philosophy of the ancient world that became foundational to the Roman view of the world. The Romans weren't necessarily uh, philosophers. They just kind of borrowed the philosophy of the Greeks and said, all right, this is good stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll use that. The Romans were mostly governors, and that was their area of expertise. And so you don't find a lot of development or, or new ideas uh, that are developing out in the Roman time. And so really, the, when you get to the presuppositions of ancient society, you go back to the Greeks. And that's where we see on page number uh, 16 in your book, uh, my, my edition's a little bit different, I want you to look at the paragraph that starts with, as we try to learn lessons... As we try to learn lessons about the primary dilemmas which we now face, by looking at the past and considering its flow, we could begin with the Greeks, or even before the Greeks. We could go back to the three ancient river cultures, the Euphrates, the Indus, and the Nile. And so for those of you that were here last year for the pre-Socratic class, you'll remember that we did talk about those Indus uh, river uh, those three ancient river cultures, the, the Indus River, the Euphrates, and the Nile. And what was the culture that, uh, what was the religion that grew up in the Indus River Valley? 
What is the ancient religion? No. Where is the Indus River? No. That's the Nile. Yes. The Indus River Valley is in India, from which it gets its name, India. And the ancient religion that uh, comes from India is Hinduism. Yeah. And, and Hinduism also spawned off Buddhism, which hasn't really taken root in India, but in other parts of the Far East you have Buddhism. So Buddhism and Hinduism are religions, worldviews, that came out of the Indus River Valley. And they have some different presuppositions, some different ideas about the basic nature of reality than what we have in the Western world. Now, when we talk about the Nile, uh, what, what culture grew up around the Nile? Right, there we got the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, they had their own religion, they had their own worldview, which was very similar to a lot of what we see in the ancient Middle East. And then when we look at the uh, Euphrates, what uh, civilization was there around the Euphrates River and Tigris? Yeah. Babylon. Babylon, yeah. So you, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers are the, the two major rivers in the Middle East. And there you've got the land known as Mesopotamia. You know what Mesopotamia means? Uh, hippopotamus has got the word potamus in it, which is the ancient word for river, and a hippo is for horse. So when you go to the hippodrome in the ancient Roman world, you're not going to watch the hippopotamuses, you're going to watch the horse races at the hippodrome. So a hippopotamus is a river horse. And so Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers. Meso means between, and potamia means rivers. So Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers, and you've got ancient Babylon there. So ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt, ancient uh, India are kind of the sources of civilization. This is where you have the highest number of population. This is where you have reading and writing developing at an early period. And so culture forms where you have a large number of people doing a lot of reading and writing, and philosophy and religion grows up around that. Now the Greeks, they are the beginning of our civilization, Western civilization. We're not a part of the Middle East, we're not a part of the Far East, but we are Westerners, at least that's where our, our cultural roots are most deeply found. And so the Greeks learned from the Egyptians. Many of the pre-Socratics traveled to Egypt. Remember how the pre-Socratic philosophers would travel to Babylon, they'd travel to Egypt, and not many of them traveled as far as India. And so their worldview and religion kind of stayed separate from what developed in the West. But the West was heavily influenced by the ancient river uh, cultures of the Euphrates and the Nile. So I just wanted you to make that connection between what we studied last year and what we're studying this year. So this is going to be a great follow-up to what we studied last year. All right. We've got about 20 minutes left here. Let's see what we are able to accomplish. Let me tell you a little bit about Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was one of the great Christian philosophers and apologists of the 20th century. He was born in 1912 in Pennsylvania, and then uh, he eventually moved to Switzerland. He served as a pastor here in the United States for 10 years as a young man, and then he moved as a missionary over to Switzerland. And then when he was in Switzerland, he decided that 
he needed to question everything. He needed to decide what is truth and how do I know what's really true. And he'd been in a, a battle of worldviews here in America. If you go back to his time in America, there was a great division that was happening among the Christian churches. That was the modernist and uh, fundamentalist divide. And so this church is an old church. And this church went through the modernist and fundamentalist uh, divide when it, it was happening in the 1930s. And one of the things I always like to tie in is and we have records in our church that show that the pastor who was here at that time uh, sided against the modernists and with the fundamentalists. And now we hear the word fundamentalist and we think it's a bad thing because what, what Satan likes to do is he likes to take anything that's associated with the truth and associate it with bad things so that by guilt by association, uh, good historical movements look bad. And so when the fundamentalists were fighting for the truth of the Christian worldview against the modernists who were trying to destroy the Christian worldview by combining it with Christianity and destroying the church with this, this hybrid of two different religions, the, the fundamentalists recognized that modernism was completely incompatible with Christianity. And so Francis Schaeffer was a fundamentalist pastor at the time who was saying, no, there's certain fundamental truths in the Bible that once you deny those truths, you don't have biblical Christianity anymore, such as the virgin birth, uh, the miracles that are in the Bible. And the modernists said, oh, virgin birth probably never happened. The miracles aren't really important. What's really important is the ethical teaching of Jesus, that we love one another. And so the fundamentalists said, no, you can't take away these fundamental truths of the Bible or you've got a different religion, a different worldview. And so he kind of had a, a crisis of faith uh, in his time in Switzerland. He says, you know, I need to just figure out whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not Christ is really God, whether or not this, this is really what I need to devote my life to. And he came to the conclusion that yes, uh, through his doubts, through his questions, the Bible proved itself to be true and that, that God proved himself to be there and that Christ proved himself to be the Savior. And so what happened in his life was very interesting. He he kind of came to the end of his missionary work and didn't really know what his life's work was going to, be, going to be. And it turned out that one thing led to another. And uh, I might have you watch this story because it is an interesting story for extra credit. But let me just summarize very briefly that eventually what he did was he, he opened up his home for people to come and stay and to live with his family if they had questions about religion and life and meaning and, and what is truth and what's important and and that God just was bringing people to his house and that it was called Labrie which was called uh, which is the the Swiss word for shelter and so it was a, a place where you could go with doubts and questions and have people that would you know lovingly uh, help you guide you through that to the truth and so through that ministry, then, God was preparing Francis Schaeffer for an international ministry of, of writing and speaking. And, again, it started very small, very simple, with faith in God and just sharing the truth with whoever God brought along with you. But then it led to, uh, you know, us studying his book yet today. So you never know what God is going to do when you simply trust him and do the work that he has in front of you to do. Now... Let's talk about some of the workload that we're going to be doing in the class this summer because knowledge doesn't come without effort and without work. And so, as I said, there's going to be the weekly readings and there are study guides. Now, the video I've watched for the first chapter, it's about 27 minutes long. 
And in the email I sent out, there's links to where you can watch that video. If you're not getting the emails, then let me know. Talk with me afterwards. Uh, write down your email address and hand it to me, and, and I'll make sure that you get on the email list. Some of you might be getting the emails through your parents. If you want to get the email as well as having it sent to your parents, then just write down your email address and give it to me, and I'll add it to the list. So you'll have the opportunity to watch the video, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to watch the video first before you read the chapter, and then I want you to read the chapter, and then I want you to, uh, well, like I said, I'm kind of figuring this out as we go. There's a study guide that goes along with the videos. Let's take a look at that. So I handed, the out, handed out to you this, the study guide for the first episode. And it's not quite the study guide I was hoping for. I was hoping for something a little bit more interactive. And really what it is, it's just an outline of what is in the video. And that's a little disappointing to me because I was kind of hoping to, that you would be taking notes during the video, but here it kind of gives you the notes while you're watching the video. And so maybe we'll start off the year at handing out these study guides, but then as the year goes along, I might say, stop using the study guide and, and take your own notes that are similar to the pattern that you see here as you watch the video. Because I think that can be more helpful to, to actually be writing down yourself what you think is the structure of the video and what you think are the main points. And the nice thing about video is you can pause it, write down, go back and watch it again, and you've got that ability. Now, he's got questions that go along with the study there at the uh, bottom of page six. And the questions are good, uh, but again, they're not quite what I was expecting or uh, looking for in the questions. But they are thought-provoking, and I think they would lead to some good discussion in class. And we'll be using the study guide, the video, uh, to be tying together with the reading, and there will be quizzes that we'll be taking throughout the year to make sure that you really are digesting the material, that it's making sense to you, that you're reviewing it. Because the key to learning is repetition. You've got to be hit with it a number of times before it's going to stick. The first time you hear something, it's thought-provoking and interesting, but you might forget it pretty soon and move on to other things. The second time you hear it, your brain starts to say, oh, this must be important. This person is repeatedly uh, putting this into my brain. Maybe I'm supposed to remember this. And then the third or the fourth time you're exposed to it, then uh, it goes into long-term memory and your brain says, okay, this is something I'm supposed to keep track of. It's not just something that was interesting for a moment. So that's why repetition is key. And the video is going to repeat a lot of what is in the book. And you'll notice that when you do the video and then read the book this week. And that's, that's by design. They want this repetition in there. Um, now... The Study to Show Yourself Approved book, it comes with a quiz book. And so, how many of you got this uh, with, your, with your book? Did you guys get a quiz book with it? Anybody get this? They didn't give it to you? Well, I'll have to make copies of it then. Um, and I've got no problem making copies with things. Because uh, we're using it for good purpose. And I might even ask for permission. Um, so... They should have sent you this, and it's more of a, an exam booklet where you can take the quizzes and you can send it in. And if you do the e-course, I noticed that it is on the, uh, the e-course where you can fill out the answers and, and send them in and it'll automatically grade it and send it back to you. So 
That comes with the quiz, but I'm going to create my own quizzes to go along with the How Should We Then Live book. Now, throughout the course of the semester, you're going to be writing and doing speeches because the key to learning is not just knowing the truth, but being able to communicate the truth. You need to be able to communicate it in writing, you need to be able to communicate it in speech. You can't go out and uh, recapture minds just by knowing things. You've got to be able to communicate to people who have been uh, abducted by the, the false worldview and the false religion that is being promulgated in our neighborhoods. And so, you need to be able to inform and persuade. And that's the, the two speeches you're going to be giving this year, an informative speech and a persuasive speech. Your speeches will be extemporaneous, which means that you're not going to just be reading uh, your speech, but that you're going to have notes on a note card, uh, or a number of note cards, and you'll be speaking from your notes, but you won't be reading your notes. So you can glance and see what my next point is, or what the statistic is that I'm going to mention, or the quote, but then you've got to look away from your notes and look at people and communicate to people. So that's the extemporaneous style of speech that we'll be doing in our course. And you'll be getting more instruction and information on that as the course goes along. And then when it comes to the application of what you're learning in interpretation, a study to show yourself approved or biblical interpretation, which is really just any interpretation applied to the Bible, but it works for all kinds of communication, that you're going to be then developing uh, your own Bible lesson. And developing your own Bible lesson starts with an exegesis of Scripture. Exegesis is a technical term that we use in seminary to describe the process of pulling the meaning out of the text and then being able to present that to others. Uh, exegesis is the opposite of eisegesis. Ex means out of, ice means into. And so what a lot of people do in wrongly interpreting text, there is a right way to interpret and a wrong way to interpret, and what I was taught in college as a wrong way, which they thought was the right way, but it's totally backwards, is that it doesn't matter what the author meant by what he wrote. What matters is what you get out of it. And this is eisegesis, where you're, you are importing meaning into the text. You're reading into the text the meaning that you want to, to get out of it. And that is the opposite of the correct way of interpreting. Um, if your parents come to you and say, you know, I'd like you to clean your room before bedtime, and you come back and your room's not clean, and, and you say, well, I thought you meant, you know, before bedtime next year. I didn't know you meant before bedtime today. Uh, you know, you'd be misinterpreting what they said to suit your own purposes. And that's eisegesis, where you're not in interpreting according to context, according to the meaning of the person who is communicating, but instead you're, you're twisting it to suit your own purposes and, and the meaning that you want to get out of it. And so that's, that's a bad way of communicating. If communication breaks down and society breaks down, if you don't try to understand what people mean by what they're saying, but instead you're just like, well, this is what I want to interpret it as, or this is how I take it. Um, so exegesis is going to be a key part of preparing your Bible lesson. So in the course of the semester, you'll be choosing a text, and then I will use the principles that you've shown here, that you've learned from study to show yourself approved, to 
pull the meaning out of the text. And there's like 15 or 25 different principles that are in the book, and we'll be utilizing all of those as a, as a practical exercise in the exegesis of Scripture. And then from your exegesis, you will develop a Bible lesson. And that Bible lesson is then something that you can use. Uh, ladies, you can use it to teach ladies and teach children, because that's what the Bible says, is that women should be teachers of other women and also of children. Men, you can use it to teach children. You can use it to teach uh, any setting, because men should be teaching men, and that's part of God's design. That's part of the exegesis of Scripture. And that's not what people want the Bible to say. People in our time want the Bible to say that men can teach men, and women can teach men, and anybody can teach anybody, and, and there's really no difference. There's no reason why people should uh, you know, have differences between men and women's roles in the family, or in society, or in church. But we'll find out that the, the Bible does mean what it says, and that if we're going to have a Christian worldview, we need to not be reading into Scripture what we want it to say, but pulling out from Scripture the meaning that the authors intended, and even if that's different from what is culturally acceptable in our time, because culture is a product of religion, and religion is a product of presuppositions. And we want to be true to the presuppositions, the religion, the foundational beliefs of the Bible, and not be mixed together with the presuppositions and the beliefs of the modernist and the postmodernist culture that we live in. All right? So, I'm already controversial here on the first morning, I know. Now, the first assignment that you're going to have this week, watch the video. Look, uh, while doing so, you can take notes. That's what we'll do. While doing so, you can take notes on the outline. All right? So anything that, that you think is interesting that is not already written on here, just put it next to it or below it where there's space to write on the outline. And I want to see your notes. Uh, that's as part of the class is I'm going to be grading you. And so how do I know whether you've read it? Well, by the notes that you take. Uh, how do I know that you watched it? Well, I trust you, but I also want to see the notes that you take. So bring your notes with you to class, and I may even have you make a copy of your notes uh, to, to, to hand in. We'll see whether or not I choose to do that. There are a lot of you. All right. For extra credit, you will be able to watch the story of Francis and Edith Schaefer on YouTube, and I'll send you the link for that. And again, show me your Objectives, the curriculum, and the expectations. Well, if you come up with any questions, feel free to, to send me an email. Email is my preferred way of communication. Uh, that way, uh, if I'm in the middle of reading or counseling or whatever, uh, I'm not interrupted with a phone call or a text. Uh, but if you send me an email, uh, check my email when I uh, am taking a break from my other work. So that's my preferred method of communication. And that's probably how you'll be hearing from me mostly is through email. So I'll send each one of you an email every week with the assignment that I mentioned here in class. And feel free to ask questions if something is not clear on the assignment. All right, well, I think we covered just about everything that I had hoped to cover this morning. I'm looking around here, and it looks like we've got it. Now, there's one other subject of discussion before I let you go. 
And that is, should we meet next week? And that's a question because the co-op that meets here on Fridays is not meeting next week, but I know most of you are not in the other classes here at the co-op, and so if we want to meet, there's no reason why we can't meet. I got the key, I can open, the, open up the building. Um, so I would be inclined to meet if that's going to sway your vote one way or the other. But uh, I think I'd sent out an email where I said that we weren't going to be meeting in one of the emails that I sent out next week. So some of you may have already made plans for next Friday and aren't able to. So let me put it this way. Uh, raise your hand if you aren't able to meet next week. All right, well, I think that settles it. Uh, we'll, we'll meet next week. And uh, as I sent out the email, normally there's classes going on downstairs. There's classes that come uh, after us. And so I, when you come here, I want you to park on this side of the church. Um, if this side of the church parking fills up, there's lots of room to park on the street uh, along the park there. Um, I want to save the parking that's closest to the building over here for the other teachers because they're bringing in supplies and carrying in stuff. And I want them just to be able to get, get to their car really easily. And they're here all day. Um, but if you want to park on, uh, you know, further down uh, and on the other side, there is parking available over there as well. Uh, just the stuff that's right in front here, save for the other teachers. Clear? All right. Well, I'm excited about this class. Thank you for sitting and listening for the last hour. Um, well, are we done at 930 or are we done at 945? We might as well start the video, right? This will save you some time. Uh, you'll have less homework if we start the video now, so I'm going to do that. Pull out your notes uh, that I've handed out to study guide. You'll need something to write. There are pencils in the
this flow is rooted in what people think. And what they think will determine how they act. There is violence and a breakdown in society up to the point in which it's unsafe to walk through the streets in many of the cities of the world. On the other hand, there is a danger of increasing authoritarianism to meet the threat of chaos in our own countries and internationally. Should we despair and give in? If not, how should we then live? The answer as to whether we should throw up our hands and give in is no. There are good and sufficient reasons for this. We can receive help from a quarter, which would be unexpected to most modern men. But to understand how, we have to delve back into history. I will begin with the time of the Romans, because the Roman civilization is the direct ancestor of the modern European world. From the time of the earliest conquests under the Republic, right down to our own day, Roman law and Roman political ideas have influenced the European scene, the whole Western civilization. The Roman Empire was great, both in size and military strength. It reached out over much of the known world. Its roads led over all of Europe, the Near East, and North Africa. All the way from Hadrian's Wall, which was built to keep out the Scots, who were too tough to conquer, to the forts on the Rhine River, to the north of Africa, to the Euphrates River, and the Caspian Sea. In one conquest, the Roman legions crossed the Alps, came down the Rhone Valley, past the peaks of the Dom Domini, to that place which is now called Vevey in Switzerland. For a time, the Helvetians, the principal inhabitants of Switzerland, held them in check and made the proud Romans pass under the yoke, ironically imitating the custom of the Romans, who had the warriors they conquered pass under a yoke. This was a temporary reversal. Not much could hold back the Roman legions, neither difficult terrain nor the armies of their enemies. They passed up over the hills and conquered the ancient Helvetian capital, the Vendicum, today called Avanche. One can imagine a Roman legionnaire who slogged home from the vastness of the north as he mounted the hill and looked down on Avanche, a little room as it were, with its amphitheater, its theater, and its temples. I love Avanche. It contains some of my favorite Roman ruins north of the Alps. Some have said, Although I think it's a high figure, that at one time, 40,000 Romans lived here. 
the opulence of Rome was here in Avanche. This gold bust of Marcus Aurelius was found here. Rome left its magnificent treasures in art and architecture across the whole empire.
Self-interest took the place of social interest, no matter how sophisticated the traffic. Thus, in desperation, the people accepted authoritarian government. In the days of Julius Caesar, Rome turned to an authoritarian system centered in Caesar himself. As Plutarch put it, the Romans made Caesar dictator for life. In the hope that the government of a single person would give them time to breathe after so many civil wars and calamities. This was indeed a tyranny avowed, since his power now was not only absolute, but perpetual too. After Caesar's death, Octavian, later called Caesar Augustus, grandnephew of Caesar, came to power. The great Roman poet Virgil, friend of Augustus, wrote in his Aeneid, saying that Augustus was a divinely appointed leader, and that Rome's mission was to bring peace and civilization to the world. Because Augustus offered external and internal peace, while keeping the outward forms of legal constitutionality, Romans of every class were ready to allow him total power in order to restore and assure the functioning of the political system of business and the affairs of daily life. After 12 BC, he became the head of the state religion with the title Pontifex Maximus. All men were urged to worship the spirit of Rome and the genius of the emperor. Later, this became obligatory for all the people of the empire. And later still, the emperors simply ruled as gods. Augustus tried to legislate morals and family life. Later, emperors tried impressive legal reforms and welfare programs. But a human god was a poor foundation, and Rome fell. It is important to realize the difference a people's worldview makes to their strength as they're exposed to the pressures of life. In the Roman era, we must understand that when one became a Christian, it meant that he stood not only opposed to the surrounding religions, but the entire culture built on those religions. Jesus. At that time, many religions were practiced in the Roman world. 
Some were called the mystery religions. Here, for example, we can see one of the initiatory rites practiced by one of these religions depicted in this Roman house in Pompeii. Nobody cared who worshipped whom, as long as the unity of the estate was maintained centered in the worship of the emperor. The Christians were killed because they were rebels, and this was especially so as they lost the support of the Jewish synagogues, and therefore the immunity which the Jews had since the time of uh, Caesar. We may express the nature of this rebellion in two ways, both of which are true. We can say they worship Jesus as God, and they worship the personal, infinite God only. This worshiping of the one God only, Caesar could not tolerate. It was counted as treason. This became a special threat to the unity of the state based on emperor worship during the reign of Diocletian in the third century, when people of the higher classes began to become Christians in larger numbers. In the Roman era, when one became a Christian, it meant that he stood not only opposed to the surrounding religions, but the entire culture built on those religions. church believed that Jesus was the Old Testament prophesied Messiah and that he had come and that he had died in substitution on the cross. The second thing, however, is something that we're apt to forget, and that is that they really did believe <clears throat> that the Old Testament and the revelation in Christ and the growing New Testament was growing then, of course, say the first century, it was God who had spoken. And that God had given truth. And as such, they were not caught in the flux of the uh, relativistic Roman world, because it really was relativistic, much like our own day. concepts and ideas that will be foundational for the whole course of study. I love history. History is fascinating. History classes are only as good as the history instructor, uh, so hopefully you'll have a good instructor this semester and you'll find history to be as fascinating as I do. And uh, greet one another, uh, have a little bit of time. If you socialize, you might want to socialize outside, uh, that way if people need this room or this space, or if you're socializing loudly, you're not disrupting the course, the classes that are going to be starting here in a little bit. All right. So thanks for being a part of my class. Jason. Yep. Yeah. You said the course is only as good as the instructor. Is this course self-taught, or we have a good instructor? Good, good, good. Good, good. Good, good.